Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today I'm chatting to Joanne Ramos, author of The Farm. Joanne was born in the Philippines and moved to Wisconsin in the USA when she was six. She graduated with a BA from Princeton and worked in investment banking and private equity investing on Wall Street before taking a role as staff writer at The Economist. We discuss how her experience of straddling two worlds helped her write the book, training yourself to get in the habit of writing, and choosing your characters to best convey the issues you want to cover. Right wrist, please. Sleeves up, says the coordinator. It is Jane's first day. Her interview at Golden Oaks was only six weeks ago, but in that time everything has changed. An unknown baby lies in her stomach, and she's a hundred miles away from Amalia surrounded by strangers. The smiling woman who greeted her in the dorm's lobby this morning took not only her suitcase and wallet, but her cell phone, so Jane has no sense of time, and she feels even more cut off from her daughter. Jane rolls up her sleeve and extends her arm, wondering if she is getting another shot and why, since she's already pregnant. The coordinator straps a bracelet onto Jane's wrist, rubber or rubbery-looking, and pushes a button that makes its thin, rectangular screen light up. This is a well-band, custom-made for us. I gave you red because it was just Valentine's Day. Jane stares at it. Mrs. Davis used to wear something similar, a circle of blue plastic like a child's toy that looks strange next to her diamond tennis bracelet, the gleaming ovals of her nails. It tracks your activity levels. Try jumping. Jane begins to jump. See? The coordinator angles the bracelet face toward Jane. The green zeros that had once filled the screen have been replaced by orange numbers that climb steadily as Jane hops, growing short of breath. You can stop, says the coordinator, but in a friendly way. She holds Jane's wrist and guides the bracelet over a reader attached to a laptop until the reader bleeps. There. Now you're synced up with our data management team. Let's say your heart rate spikes. This happens. It's usually no biggie, but it can also signal some underlying irregularity in your heart, pregnancy being a strain on your TikToker. The coordinator, Carla, pauses, waiting for the severity of this possibility to set in. We'll know immediately. Can whisk you in to see a nurse. Or if you're not getting enough exercise, we'll have Hannah all over it. Carla grins. All over you. Her freckled cheeks fold into dimples. Jane has never seen so many freckles in her life. Freckles on top of freckles receding into freckles. Hannah? She's our wellness coordinator. You'll get to know her real well. Carla winks at Jane. She runs through a tutorial of the well band. It's various monitors, timers, alarm and snooze and panic buttons, the GPS locator, calendar, alerts, how to receive announcements. How do you like your clothes? Carla's eyes rake over Jane, head to toe and back up again. Jane feels her face grow hot. In truth, she has never worn clothes so thin and soft. Just this morning, in her winter coat, she was freezing. Ata and Amalia waited with her on the street outside their apartment building for the car to arrive. Amalia buried under so many layers of wool and fleece that Jane could barely see her face. But here, in clothes light as air, Jane is warm. Jane says so to Carla. Cashmere, Carla answers matter-of-factly. Golden Oaks doesn't skimp, that's for sure. There is a knock on the open door. Hi, Jane, sings Miss You, giving Jane a stiff hug. Oh, hello, Miss You. Jane jumps to her feet. Please, sit. I just wanted to make sure you're settling in. Miss Yu takes a seat on the bench next to Jane. How's the morning sickness? Is your room okay? Did you meet Reagan? I feel okay, only a little tired, Jane answers. The room is beautiful. So are the clothes. Jane rubs the cashmere on her thigh with her palm. I have not yet met my roommate. Miss Yu frowns slightly. But, Jane says quickly, not meaning to get her roommate into trouble, I have only been here since nine o'clock, and I had the check-in with the nurse. I've been busy. Miss Yu's face relaxes. She places a hand on Jane's hand. I'm guessing Reagan was tied up with an appointment. She'll be around soon, I think. This is your new home. We want to help you feel at home. At the word home, Jane's throat tightens.
Hi, Joanne. Hello. How are you doing? Welcome to London. Thank you. <laughs> um, great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Um, so let's kick things off um, let's, with telling everyone a little bit about your debut novel, The Farm. So imagine the most luxurious retreat you've ever seen. It's got everything. Uh, it's got daily massages, gourmet chefs, private yoga instruction, and it's all for free. In fact, the women who stay there get paid huge money to, to, to be there. And the only catch is that for the nine months that they're there, they can't leave the grounds, they're monitored 24-7, and they're totally cut off from their daily lives. Because all of the women staying there are surrogates, carrying the babies of the richest people in the world. And this is the farm. Okay. Cool. What a concept. What a concept. <laughs> um, so let's chat a little bit about yes. the conception of the mm-hmm. idea. So... Um, as, as many of the themes seem to have been inspired kind of by your real life experience, mm-hmm. um, you, you emigrated to the USA from the Philippines as a child, you attended Ivy League College mm-hmm. at Princeton, and before working on Wall Street. So a lot of kind of like, you know, working with the, the rich. Kind and of a lot of sort of straddling two sides of yeah, things, yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and, and you're also a mother of three children. Yes. Um, so how did all of these aspects in your life culminate in this idea? Tell me about that. So... You know, I've always loved writing since I was a kid. I just didn't really get to the point where I dedicated myself to it until I turned 40. That's when I um, realized that I really, all of these ideas that had been stewing in my head from being a Filipina immigrant to Wisconsin, from being a financial aid kid at Princeton, or one of the few women on Wall Street when I was there. um, These were all the things that I'd really wanted to talk about in a book. And I just couldn't find a way into the story, something that would contain them and give them enough room to really breathe until I read this little article. I remember it's like three paragraphs long in the Wall Street Journal, and it was about a surrogacy facility in India. So a place where people were hiring local Indian women to care of their babies, and they would house them there. Mm. That Apparently, that's now illegal in India. Uh, Back then, it wasn't. And the what-ifs just started brewing in my mind immediately. Um, and it just seemed like it would be the way in to all these themes I wanted to write about. And it and it did. It, the, the idea stuck, and I just started to write yeah. this book. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, God, I can't believe that that was actually a thing. Because there's also stuff in, the Ukraine, or in Ukraine as well, isn't And apparently there? in Thailand. The funny thing is I didn't do any research on that. It was just I, got, I couldn't shake the idea of a surrogacy facility. I had been writing short, really bad short stories for about a year and a half on all of these themes, things like dog walker to the rich or Amazon fulfillment center worker Mm. packaging up luxury products, really earnest stories trying to get at the heart of something and unable to do it. But this, for whatever reason, the surrogacy facility idea worked. And so um, I didn't do more research. I just started imagining a world where billionaires would want to place their fetuses. And that, to me, um, was a place like Golden Oaks, the farm. Yeah. How did you find – so once you had that – that location, which often yes. a lot of writers say that once they've got a location, yeah. then um, they're away. You know, kind of like once you've got somewhere to place the story, then the ideas kind oh, of... Oh, that, that's come. interesting. Yeah, that I was the case for me, for sure. Yeah. But suddenly you were like, boom. Like, yes. Okay, that's, yes. that's wonderful. Exactly. How did you... Did you find then that the, the themes that you wanted to discuss naturally came kind of at certain points of the story or were, was the, were you trying to feed them in no, it just sort of came because I already had of the terrible short stories I wrote over that year and a half. The only one that had any sort of worth to it, I think, was a little flash fiction piece I did about a young Filipina baby nurse who left her newborn daughter at home to take care of a wealthier person's baby. So that was already there. Yeah. And so, because I had this construct of a surrogacy facility that would ho- that would house these hosts, as I call the surrogates, I said, "Oh, well, then she fits into that." And then it was natural that she would have a roommate. So then I started to imagine her roommate. And it was natural someone would have to run the farm. 
And to me, that was natural. That would also be a woman because billionaires don't want a swashbuckling man, you know, lording over their their surrogates. And so it, it really did. It wasn't easy. I'm not saying I, there were chapters I rewrote for three months and then ended up trashing because they didn't work. But the idea took hold and and never let go. Yeah, yeah. So. How, that must have been a wonderful feeling to be it like, was. oh, I know what this is. Especially, um, yeah, especially after so long, really writing in the dark and really. I mean, what's hard about short stories is they don't. You're just starting over every day or every few days. Um, I just couldn't find. I really couldn't find a way in for so long, um, and that really was just an act of, I guess, persistence or faith or optimism. But once the idea for Golden Oaks was there, um, at least there was a thread yeah, that I how, could hold on to. How soon into the process of kind of having that the idea of wanting to write a book did the did the, the setting come to you? Uh, about a year and a half. Okay, wow. Yeah, Good it was determination. a long, long, long time. And it was, you know, I, I wrote when my kids were in school. And I didn't tell people because I didn't know if anything would come. It was just sort of this quiet thing I was doing because I've always wanted to do it by myself. And even when the idea of the farm came about or the surrogacy facility, I still wasn't telling people necessarily, but I felt good enough to sign up finally for a writing workshop just so I wasn't alone all day, every day, um, get some sense of community with some, you know, people who had eye to contact. write it. Right, eye contact, <laughs> learn how to speak again to people um, who are adults. Um, so it, it's not even, even then, it's not like I thought I would – I knew I would finish it for me. I wasn't thinking far enough ahead about publication or things like that, but I knew that I had a story that I really did want to tell. Yeah. Because I read somewhere that it had been 20 years since you'd written any fiction when you yes. decided that. How did you find the yes. the process? So you obviously did the course, but how did you find the process of getting back into writing after such a break from it? Well, I think, well, friends who are writers have told me maybe what I needed was that year and a half of writing and practicing and stacking up the pages, as Ann Patchett says. I mean, I, I, I do believe that it's a craft before it's an art. And that year and a half was a lot of working on craft without knowing that's what I was doing. Mm. I was just writing and writing and writing. And and I recently reread the work from that period and it's not great. Yeah. But maybe that's what I needed to do to get that earnestness and that obviousness. They were pretty obvious, these short stories out of my system. Yeah, absolutely. And well, I mean, so many people say, you just need to write. And yes. so so much, so I spend a lot of time mm-hmm. thinking about stuff or write do sketching out elaborate diagrams yeah. about my plot and stuff yeah. like that and it's like it gets to a point where you need to just do the writing yes and and, and the, the and that kind of chipping away at exercising the muscle of the creativity and all that kind of stuff I think that is so key and so you, you were just in training yeah I, I guess so <laughs> it's like the Rocky sequence. yes well also one of my friends from writing workshop she's still um a friend of mine, I was telling her how I really feel that I lucked upon that article. What if I hadn't read my husband's Wall Street Journal that day? I don't normally read his Wall Street Journal, right? And what Sarah, my friend, said was, but she said, I really believe that had you read that article at the beginning of that year and a half, it might not have struck you. She's like, there's something about being in the process of working on your writing and open to the world and working on your craft that things will strike you in a different way. And so, yeah, it was luck, but it was also because I was already in it, is what she said. And I think there's probably truth to that. Definitely. Yeah. Have you read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? I haven't. I haven't. She, um, she sort of talks about creativity and where it comes from and writes about it so beautifully. But she, her, in Big Magic, she talks about um, ideas coming and them hitting kind of like arriving at the person that's supposed to write them at the right time for that person. Oh, wow. And if you don't kind of grab onto that idea, then it will move on and then someone else will write it, which huh. is why... 
you'll be like, uh, I had that idea like a couple of years ago. She right. like has this kind of idea that creative, like kind of ideas just like fly around. I love it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I so love like, it. It's, 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 um, it's a nice thought, you know, that, yeah. that, that was like that. I often think, you know, it's kind of your subconscious, what you're, what, what you're aware yes. of, what you're paying attention right. to. Right. And, and also what you're, what you're doing with your brain in regards to the writing, just being open to it. Like I've been right. writing down, um, sort of trying to, at the end of my writing process, journaling about the good bits of the writing, mm-hmm. what kind of happened, but also asking questions about the things that I'd like to figure out. Yes. But also then writing down ideas, like story ideas. And the more you write, the more ideas you have. Yes. And the more you're looking around for inspiration for ideas. And it's just quite nice to be in that creative Yeah, it process. is. And it is a certain mode of being, right? Like yeah. I'm not in it right now because yeah. I'm selling a book, it turns out, takes up a lot of your time. <laughs> so... I, I'm not right now in this space, maybe where I'm as open as I was during that period to new things. And I'm trying to be. Yeah. But some of it is space. I guess that's also maybe why you yeah. are in Spain now, right? Some of it is, have, for me at least, having the quiet and the space and the emptiness to fill it with something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but you'll get back into that space. It's just, it's, and, and everything that you're doing now is going to be op- like, you know, expanding your worldview and things that you, things that you're experiencing will change with how you write and will change. It's, it's all development, isn't it? Yes. It's also, you know, sometimes I think, I mean, I've loved writing since I was young. What if I have one book in me? And then I remember it's a craft too. It's a job too. Mm-hmm. So I can't get nervous that I'm not actively writing every day now. I just have to know when it's time. I get back into it and I continue unconvinced the way I did for that year and a half and then have faith that it'll come again. But right, sometimes in these moments, it's been months that I've been doing other things. I get nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 46. You... I finally have a new career. I'm not doing it. I'm selling a book, which I'm so excited about. But I, I also want to write another one. And I get a little panicked about that. Like, what if by stopping, I, I lose it or, or something? And I, I just have to have faith that it's somehow it's comforting to know it's a job, that it's a steady, it's a practice. Mm-hmm. So I'm not actively practicing now. I will get back into it. And that not everything and needs that. to be this inspired creative you know yes, it just for an amazing sure. process like you oh, have to yes. put in the hard slog yes. to get those bits and yes. and to kind of chip away towards something and yes. with every bit of dedicated dedication you put into yes. sitting down and writing it you're moving closer and it's just yeah it's difficult it's easy to think oh my god i'm so out of it when you haven't done it for a while but that's how i'm feeling yeah yeah <laughs> especially when you're doing completely the opposite you know speaking yes. to loads of people you're not yes. in your own head all the totally. time yeah. yeah but um on on the sort of having the gap and then coming back to writing mm-hmm. what advice do you have for people that have haven't haven't written for ages and really would love to get back into it and yeah what kind of advice would you give so the, it's a really simplistic one which you've kind of already said, which is to to want to write and to get good at writing, you have to write. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, the hard part was getting into the habit of it. Um, and this is a little cheesy, but I happened to read some sort of article back when I was starting and stopping and starting and stopping and having a hard time getting into the practice of it. And it was something like, any habit can be created in 33 days or 37 days or 42. I don't remember mm-hmm. the number. Yeah. The number doesn't matter. Like, pick a big number. And I said, okay. I was really having trouble getting into a routine. And I said, I'm, I'm going to just believe this article. And I'm going to make myself write Monday to Friday for whatever the number was, 37 days, no matter what. Yeah. And so I did because I can commit to 37 days. And it worked. Because then after that, the, the trouble after that point wasn't the routine. I was already in it. It was trying to find something good to say. And that took another year, year and yeah. three months. <laughs> um, so I think my real... The most basic advice would be force yourself to do it 
however that makes sense for you. If you have another job, make it in the mornings or the evenings for an hour even, but just make it consistent and keep doing it. Yeah. And don't think that inspiration will strike you out of the blue. It'll come when you're open to it because you're in the practice of it. Yeah. I love the idea of, of like forming a habit. That's so, because like once, Some random once article. you know, yeah, I, I feel like I've heard that. I did like a, a sort of like how you could switch your your attitude from negativity to positivity yeah, yeah. within like twenty days. Right, right, right. And I did that. And it was it was all about habit. And, yes. And knowing that you when you when you have sat down and you've written for an hour a day, mm-hmm. knowing how that feels to to have to have that have that achievement and to be working towards the thing that you care about so much exactly. every day. Then once you you're doing that for so many days in a row not doing it feels awful exactly and then you and then you know so you'd true. much rather feel that exactly yeah. yes it's also the idea that habit this art and i'm remembering a bit this article this the idea that habit is something that you do because you do because it's your habit so you don't have to think about it yeah and to get to that point with writing was hard but it took me the 37 days then the question then became not am i going to write today but what will i write so in a way it gave me the ability to focus my energies on more substantial things than, oh, should I write today? Do I want to write? Am I going to sit down or do, you know? Yeah, the sort of like the, the faffing about. You right. Because like right. you know that's what you're going to right. do. Right, like exactly. Sort of instantly gets rid of the procrastination. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great, it's, it wasn't the, the power of habit, was it the book, the power of habit? It was an article based on a book, so maybe it, okay, I maybe think it, it was. was. Yeah, I, I think it's Charles Duhigg. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. I recommend it, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not in a habit of doing it. Right. <laughs> it's so easy to, to get out of it again. Yeah. It is. That's, yeah. that's uh, what I'm a bit worried about right now. But no, we'll you're going to do it. I believe okay. in you. Oh, um, so let's get back to the book. Yes. Um, so it's told from the perspective of four protagonists. Yes. So you've got Ate. Is that mm-hmm. pronounced right? That's and right. Sort of an elderly Filipino woman who's left her family behind in the Philippines mm-hmm. uh, and who works tirelessly to send money home to them. Mm-hmm. And then you have Jane, a single mother um, who is desperately seeking money so she can support her daughter, her newborn daughter. And then May, the kind of fearsome, manipulative manager of the facility. Mm-hmm. And then Reagan, a young privileged white woman looking for purpose and but kind of also enough cash to live her life free of the kind of restrictions of her family yes um so all really interesting Mm -hmm. characters with all different perspectives that complement the story and everything but so can you speak a little bit about how and why you decided on these four characters to tell your story um did the themes or the characters come first right so the themes came first in the sense that as we've talked about these were ideas i'd been considering for a long time, um, particularly the idea of what a meritocracy really means in America, what the American dream means. That's something I really started to question at Princeton when I met kids for the first time who had never held a job and would never need to and took it as a given. Mm. And they were, I'm not saying they're, I've had people tell me, oh, you're doing the class warfare thing. I'm not saying they're bad, but they're great. Some of these people are my friends. What I'm saying is I'd never met people like that before until I'd gotten to Princeton. And it did make me question this whole idea that my parents had taught me that you work hard, you play by the rules, and that's how you make it in America. Yeah. I was like, really? But they they didn't have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and they're fine. And they don't know anything else yes. other than that that's existence. That's right. Yeah. Um, so th- that was already there. But in that year and a half of bad writing, or uh, writing bad short stories, rather, the, the one the one piece that I loved was the, the, the Jane's piece. I didn't know she was Jane then, but she was a young Filipina baby nurse leaving her newborn daughter at home to take care of someone else's newborn. So that is where I started. Um, in my years raising my kids, when I was at home for a bit, I had gotten to know a lot of domestic workers and their stories um, definitely inspired me to write about Filipina and non-Filipina, but just domestic workers in general. So Ache is an amalgamation of many older domestic workers that I've come to know, um, mostly in New York, but actually 
referencing maybe some of the women I also knew growing up um, in Wisconsin, um, these women who haven't seen their children in sometimes decades Mm. because they've left them back home and keep working in the States, even beyond the point where you think they'd be ready, they have enough money to go home. It's Mm. almost like just a little more, a little more, just so I can ensure my family's future a little more. Um, And so I, I really wanted to include her. Even though some people have suggested, not anyone who's read the book now, but in the, the my workshop, maybe she slows down the book because she isn't necessary. I think she brings so much heart to the book, um, sort of the bigger story of this mm-hmm. grand sacrifice that, that that people make, but especially mothers, I think. I, I found um, the conflicting emotions that she stirred in me mm-hmm. as I read mm-hmm. that story and then the kind of understanding that you have of her storyline. Mm-hmm. I think that adds an element to the book that's really yeah. important. I thought so too. Yeah, it, it, about, not propulsive, not propulsive, but and yet I think it filled it out yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. And so that and was also something. Showed the kind of con, like the contrast and the sort of conflicting ideas that you can. It shows the complexity of the if the issues. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she, I wanted her there, and and the funny thing about her too is I think she's, um, she's a very, people tend to love her. I tried to make it complicated and not a saint. I, I didn't want to have the the trope of the the wise older immigrant woman, mm-hmm. which I think you can sometimes find in literature, because she is someone. When you have a hard life, you have to make choices that are hard and that sometimes maybe morally questionable. And I wanted to make sure that she, I didn't idealize poverty basically, or or put layer on wisdom through poverty in a way that kind of bugs me sometimes when I see it yeah. in other books. Uh, and then I really wanted the perspective of um, privilege. Uh, and that's where Reagan came into play. I wanted Jane's roommate to be someone very different from her. And I really wanted, once I came upon the idea of a surrogacy facility, I, it allowed me to widen my lens to include some sort of critique or at least interrogation of where we are as a society and capitalism. And so I wanted the perspective of someone who believes in it. Mm. And... May you became a woman, mostly because I thought that you would have a woman running a place like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is a, in many ways, the American dream. Um, she didn't come from that much, and she's um, uh, uh, she's breaking glass ceilings everywhere. She's a very ambitious and and capable businesswoman uh, who makes a name for herself by commoditizing other women. So there is that. Uh, but but I wanted to sort of have the perspective of someone who really believes that in the way that I was raised, that that America works for you if you work hard mm. and juxtapose that against women who work really hard and the system doesn't work for them. Yeah. And also like the kind of idea, how she justifies her, how yes. she justifies it to herself because, yes. it, because, it, because it's so much about the sort of the bonuses at the end yes. and how she justifies kind of the control that yes. this facility has over them yes because it's all about money at the end yes. of the day yes yeah it's um it will i mean incredible use of characters to show so many different perspectives like mm-hmm. it's it's um it, it's it's all of them are really interesting to read um how did you manage their storylines um to discuss the kind of topics in the novel, uh, obviously you've got them, you've got their different perspectives and you've got their, the scenario. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you kind of, are you a plotter? Did you plot out? No, watch the, so you just, all. you just yeah. sort of saw, wrote from their perspectives within that yes. scenario. So how you read the book is how I wrote it. I wrote flipping around back and forth. And I wonder if that's because I do get bored really easily. I was just talking about that with my husband recently. I'm like, <laughs> I wonder if I did that way because just when I'd spent months on one chapter, I was like, ah, oh, 
I would switch to someone so different. And that was newly very exciting to me. I don't know. That's just psychoanalyzing myself. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I, I used to feel a little guilty in the beginning because I didn't know what I was doing. It was trial and error um, writing this way. And then a friend of mine pointed me to, I think it was a speech at Columbia that Zadie Smith gave about, I don't remember the names of it, but people who plot and organize, I think she called them micromanagers, and then the people who kind of go with a tone or a place or a feeling. Uh, and that's definitely how I write. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't know that the book would become something of a page turner. That surprised me when it was happening. And I wasn't sure how I felt about it in the beginning. Um, but it, but that's where things were going. So I just went, I just went along with it. Yeah. How did you, if you're working from a place of tone and location how do you keep how do you keep plot in mind and how do you keep the kind of forward propulsion of the novel in mind when that's happening if when you're kind of just exploring people's ways of thinking and or is that where you had some chapters that you scrapped like you said yeah the, the most of the chapters I scrapped were in the beginning when I was trying to get to know the characters may you especially was really hard because that's around the time I was in the writing workshop still when I was writing her and people didn't get her and they hated her and I was just trying to figure out what made her do what she did. Mm. Jane and Ate came, I must say, very easily. Uh, and Reagan, too. Reagan is hard uh, because uh, I didn't want her to be fully a white savior. I think she's, mm. I was trying to make her more complicated than that. She's been called that in some reviews. I'm like, ah, because <laughs> I tried not to, to make her more than that. Um, that's really the struggle with the rewrite. The, the, there were definitely many chapters I've been. On, with those two characters but one I don't know I, it, I know this is not a great answer once the plot started going it started going yeah the whole it almost started to become a whodunit for a while like who's carrying what baby and I'm like oh, I don't think I want that but that's just what was kind of coming out of it and once I knew the characters they started doing things and that's I don't a, know that's, that's I don't the know. magic of writing like, it the, is it's so weird the, there's only so much I, lo- I love planning yeah there's only so much you can plan that all of the kind of delicious de- details and all of the fun and all of the kind of you know the 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 detail, like the intricate details of the plot, they come from just exploring it and actually writing. Yeah, it's and funny. Things, things emerge to you. Yeah, right, don't they? Yeah. No, if I had any ideas that I knew I wanted, it was the perspectives of these women, and then also certain conversations. I wanted to have someone at some point. It turns out to be Mayu and Reagan talking about free trade, which sounds really boring, but it's something I'm interested in because it's a basic tenet of economics that when two willing parties, meaning there's no gun to their head make a trade it's good for both of them that's just a basis of economics and is that true when one party is very constrained in her choices so you could say that all the women at golden oaks at the farm no one forced them to go there Mm. so it's not abusive because they chose to go there or you could look at it and say in a system that's totally out of whack and completely unequal and where some women or in this book women have very few choices that's still not fully free will and that's not fair and it could still be abusive and so I knew I wanted that conversation but I knew I wanted that before I knew the characters yeah so it was really the plot sort of came on its own and then I was able to fold in some of the ideas I really wanted to make sure to tackle yeah yeah and then there was a lot of rewriting there because I didn't want it to be so didactic and heavy like my short stories for that year and a half so that (laughs) took a lot of time kind of come in naturally yes exactly if you're holding those ideas in your head about wanting to have those conversations when a point comes up where you're like oh it fits here yes exactly that's, that's like what it was that's yes exactly exactly yeah. exactly i'm like oh this might work this could be where i put in the fill in the blank the yeah, free yeah. trade talk that they have or, or whatever it is cool yeah. man yeah like that. that's that's the nice kind of oh it's working right kind of bit right yeah right um so um 
so obviously you've, you've written about these characters, these different types of characters. You could also kind of say that they're, um, not to not to simplify them in any way, mm-hmm. but they're, they're, kind of, they're kind of different personality types mm-hmm. as well. You know, there's mm-hmm. kind of like, there's a, there's a rebel, mm-hmm. there's kind of like, um, you know, like May's obviously like a bit of a shark. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of mm-hmm. like these kind of personality types. Mm-hmm. Um, how much did the need for different types of character inform your choice of protagonist? doesn't sound like it did that much um how important did you th- do you think it is for no- novels to offer different perspectives from characters with like uh, with different motivations or to give yeah. yeah I you know I didn't think of them that way necessarily I think it was more that I I wanted okay so one thing I noticed when I was in the writing workshop was how everyone sanctified Ate the older baby nurse and hated me reflexively no matter what I did mm. and so that motivated me to try to complicate both of them to soften May or at least humanize her to show that maybe you hate her choices and still hate her, but you can maybe understand why she made some of them. Mm-hmm. And for Ate to show that when your life is as difficult as hers, sometimes you'll do things that the reader doesn't like. Mm-hmm. It's not like her poverty and her kind heart and her love for her kids makes her some sort of saint because she's brown and older. Um, that was very important to me. Um I get, and I think it's rooted in straddling all these worlds. Like, I know people who hate anyone reflexively who's in finance, for sure, because they think they're fat cats and evil. And I know people who don't see their, their domestic workers. Like, they, they like them. They think that they're good employers. But if you really ask them, they, they've never really thought to see them mm. beyond what they do for them. What they do for them. Yeah. And I think that is some small explanation for where certainly – my country, why my country is where it is, that we can't see each other, that that when I, I'm in New York, it's a bastion of Democrats. When some of my friends hear about people who voted for Trump, they immediately hate those people. Like, do we get anywhere seeing people or not seeing people rather that way? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was less the different personality types, but I just wanted to have different types of people. I didn't want one perspective. I wanted the reader to have to look at all four and maybe see maybe be able to see people who are different from her, themselves a little differently afterwards. Yeah, and to understand different motivations, different yes. um, situations, to understand that things aren't cut and dry. Yes, yeah, because I don't think they are. If you, and and it, it, maybe if you only have one type of friend your whole life, you can decide that huge swaths of the world are just evil. I've always try, had to maybe fit in in different worlds or chose to, and... Whatever my politics, I do have a hard time consigning anyone, I guess, judging anyone totally and saying that they're totally bad, even the people I know, not even, who voted opposite that I did in the, in 2016. It, 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 I think I very much disagree with that vote, maybe, but, I, but when I know the people, I at least understand them and their motivations and maybe their resentments and how they feel forgotten. I'm not justifying the mm. vote. I'm saying it's more complicated than yeah. saying they're bad. I've had some interesting conversations with people, um, friends of mine who voted, you know, like obviously there's a similar kind of thing with yes, the Tories and right. Labour here and... And Brexit, know, I, right? And Brexit, yeah. yeah and, 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 yeah, and the sort of elections that um, got David Cameron into power, mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. and I had some real conversations with people that I, that I, cons- I just assumed would have the same ideas right. as me and same opinions and would vote the same. And then to, to have that shock, but then to understand their motivations behind it, 
because you because when you think that you know the right thing or you're right. I, I'm medicated this yes. is the best thing for the yes. world it can be which is it's like I definitely am like that yeah. it can be so hard to understand a different point of view but you've got to remember that it's a diff- you've got to have a different experience and like yes yeah I mean it would be also be remiss, like, remiss not to talk about what's happened what happened yesterday and yes. um, yes given the topics of your book so yeah. kind of yeah. in Alabama they're potentially passing this law that bans abortion mm-hmm. and even in the case of rape and incest right. which is just so messed up hopefully it won't get through right. but it's it must be interesting to have written a book which considers so much kind of females fertility mm-hmm. in this kind of work, moment where it's about to be seriously controlled again yes and it's starting yeah. to be really cons- like I don't know whether you can talk about that a little bit yeah well it's it's you know I've had some people ask me how much the 2016 election informed the book. And it, it didn't in the sense that I started years before that. Um, but clearly issues of women's agency over their bodies, inequality, all that stuff has been brewing already um, and are things that I've thought about a lot. Um, it's just that the book has hit the zeitgeist in a way I think no one expected, or I certainly didn't expect when I started writing in 20, I don't know when, 2012, yeah. 2013. Um, so it's become more... Germain, I guess, to the conversation. Um, it, it's just shocking to me that we're still having some of these conversations and these votes. And, and I went on the Women's March um, and, and the sign that kind of hit me in the gut the most were these older women who would raise these signs saying, I can't believe we're still marching about this shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not as old as those women, but I, when I heard about Alabama, I can't, I honestly, it's hard to believe that we're back to this place. Yeah. And also that it can that in a, a rational world that religious people can think I'm not blaming religious mm-hmm. people, but that it can be based on religion, a decision mm-hmm. like this. Right. Um, around something that's so awful. Like, you know, twelve year old children yes. could, who've been abused could be forced to mm-hmm. give birth. You know, it's It's also so interesting. I was just thinking when you were speaking earlier, when you're juxtaposing against a new openness with Me Too and other that that, that is happening in tandem. Mm. I feel like the conversations that I have with my daughter or that people are having now are conversations I wished um, were, part of, were part of the atmosphere when I was growing up or even when I was in finance. And I was, the things that I omitted in myself or allowed to happen or laughed off to be the cool girl mm-hmm. in college, on Wall Street, in private equity. I'm happy that people now know that that is not okay. Maybe not everybody knows, but women, I think, know more than they did before that I can stand up and say, I don't have to be the, this is wrong. And then this is happening in Alabama. Like, the, the, both are happening together. Yeah. And what is the connection between the two? And is one a backlash to the other? Or I don't know. It's, it's strange, right? It's not like everything's getting repressive all over. I mean, some things are for sure. But the conversation, feminism and what's allowable and, and consent, it has changed, I thought. I think it is, yeah. And then you have this. Like, yeah. What? It's, it's, it seems maybe it's it's it natural that when it comes to the forefront so much as it is that but you're getting both sides yeah, and also the old is. kind of systems of power potentially are Feel threatened or something. Do you yeah, think? Well, like, it's like the Brett Kavanaugh yeah. stuff. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, kind of yeah. Like, it's like yes. yeah, this has yeah. happened and there's been this, right. but at the same time, it doesn't matter because the how the system works is still it's still it's still going to happen like that. And I suppose it's kind of like yeah, you can protest and you can do this, but the power is still held in this. Right. kind of capacity that's right. that's true. so yep. maybe it's just we're all more aware of it and but that hasn't changed the power structures yeah fundamentally and so but hope, having the conversations and noticing those things will hopefully change the power structures yes and for us in congress we've had more women more minorities and everything. like things are changing it's just 
I just, that's what I cling to when I read the paper about what just happened in Alabama. Yeah. I was just asking an interview just an hour or two ago, are you pessimistic or optimistic? I think, and, and, um, I was listening to Cory Booker speak once and he said, it's a choice. Optimism is a choice. It's not just Mm -hmm. your character. It's a choice. And so that I, I loved that. And so I will say optimistic because that's my choice to be optimistic. Yeah. Not because I felt great about any of the news that I read this morning yeah. or yesterday. Well, you have to choose to be optimistic, right. don't you? you and, otherwise, you don't do anything. You sit at home. And all the time. And, and, and the more you fixate on mm-hmm. the negatives, the more that creates the existence that we have, yes. you have, and the world has. Yes. And yeah, right. yeah. Oh, right. Right. blimey. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I could talk about that for you for, for hours. Um, so let's get back to the, the kind of character thing. So, mm-hmm. what advice would you have for people that are at the point where they're choosing their characters? She's, I, you know, I, an article I read about Meg Wallitzer, the writer, um, I think it was about her most recent book, Female Persuasion. But anyway, she was saying it that she finds it funny that the advice given to most would-be writers is write what you know, because to her, you write about what you're obsessed about. And that's really been the case for me. And the characters fell out of that because I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with how we don't see people even how we don't see people in our lives, even women who help us raise our kids, which is one of the most intimate connections you think you could have with someone outside of your family. And because I'm interested in race and otherness and inequality, those were sort of my obsessions. It made sense to me that I would choose a domestic worker Mm. who is from my background. Um, And so I would think if someone is writing and has a set of ideas that she is obsessed with and can't can't shake that a character that would allow her to explore those issues or fell out of those late nights thinking about these things that you can't you know you can't sleep because you keep thinking about the same things again and again that's what happened with me i think that's how you pick a character mm-hmm. because then you'll be compelled to keep writing writing it and exploring it like even when may you didn't work for a long time or reagan i knew that's a perspective i wanted because these were the ideas i wanted to talk about and so she became real they became real over many, many, many rewrites <laughs> and many months of effort. But once they became real, they allowed me to do what I wanted to do yeah. with a book. I think that's great advice. Write about write from a perspective that write what you're obsessed about writing about. You I know, loved that. when I because I was always told that when I was younger. Write about what you know. I'm like, oh, I don't think I know anything. Like, what do I know? But write about what you're obsessed about. Write about what keeps you up at night. Write about what you always argue with your friends about. Like yeah. that. I was like, oh, that I've got. Yeah, you and know? Then the things that you get really passionate yes. about talking about. Yes, but I suppose in a way. That is kind of what you know, isn't it? Yeah, if, if you're, that's true. If you're, if you so, if you're mm-hmm. so in it mm-hmm. and you can't think about anything else, right. that is that's what you're, and it's also what you're exploring. And that's a fun. That's also a fun element of 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 writing when you're, you know, when you're writing about something that you're obsessed with, mm. you get to develop your your ideas even further. You get exactly. to understand perspectives more because yes. your characters you can show different. Yeah, it's, it's like your it's a discovery too. Yeah, that's what's is, so great about it. Yeah, so what's going to drive you to carry on because you're so right. interested in discovering those different channels right. and stuff like that. Exactly. Great idea. Great, yeah. great advice. Meg Walter. Yeah. Meg Walter. <laughs> no wonder she's so successful. <laughs> um, so each protagonist, um, and to extent every character in the book, mm. really, um, which I suppose is is true to life is striving for something. Mm-hmm. Um, you spoke about the American dream earlier and stuff. So whether that's money to provide for their families or for status mm-hmm. or for purposes with Reagan. Um, so it's an exploration of what people are willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. in pursuit of what they believe their life needs to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about a little about your exploration of striving within the book? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I mothers and maybe even more so certain immigrant mothers, I think are very... Um, interesting and 
poignant and complicated because so much of the sacrifices they make are not for themselves, right? So what are they striving for? Is it really their material or emotional well-being or betterment? No, at least at least for Ate and Jane, it's really for their kids. Mm. Um, and that's very true to me. I mean, my parents worked very hard for us. You know, they, they broke with their homeland to come here. And they had great lives too, I believe, but they really sacrificed for our schools and um, for our trajectory. Um, and that I think is a very sort of quintessentially immigrant and also, um, I guess, mothering, motherhood type of thing that, that, that you, your motivator is someone else. Um, and then the American Jew, I feel like Ate and May are actually very similar, even though many people would disagree with me in that they're both hustlers who actually believe in the system and believe that they can make it work for them. The difference is that May, you started in a different place. She had a lot more, even though she didn't, was not born wealthy, she was still born in this country and had opportunities that Atta never had. But they're both striving um, to make it. I mean, Atta has a certain line in the book where she says, it's too bad she wasn't born here in America because she is a hustler. She's, she has a lot of business acumen. Mm. Uh, she believes that if she were born in America, she would have done well because in America, as long as you know how to make money, money buys everything else. And there is some truth to that, I have to say. And I, I definitely found that at Princeton, which is the first time I really encountered class. Like in a weird way, it was the people who were rich there, but not necessarily from old families that were easier for me to talk to as sort of an outsider than people who are embedded in a backwards looking notion of class. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think the fact that money buys everything in America is a problem, but in a weird way, it gives, if you're able to make it, it gives you access in a way that a very class-based system might not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was interesting. I like how you formulated it, but it is true that they're all, all of these women are striving for something. And you could even say the clients, whether or not you agree with them, the ones who hire baby nurses in the book or who hire hosts, what they're striving for is family or giving their children the best. Mm, that's what, yeah, that's such you know? a massive theme of the book. Yeah. Like what and what the best is. Yes. And, like, and that kind of obsession of like, you know, like it, when, you know, Arte's buying the headphones for her mm-hmm. son and mm-hmm. it's, it's like, what are the best, you know, what are the best right. ones? Like that kind of concept of I will work tirelessly to just make sure that you've got everything that I never had. And yes. That kind of. Yes. Yeah. And then if you have all the privilege and access in the world, all the crazy places that that compulsion can go. And that was some of writing the book was just seeing it in in Manhattan, honestly. Um, this, this desire to give our kids the best of everything and to take all obstacles out of their path is, one, very different than how my parents raised me. Um, and two, it can lead to really ridiculous places when you have wealth and privilege as the college admission scandal. I don't know if you follow that in the U.S., but it's people were paying – some movie stars were very wealthy, yeah, $500,000 yeah, yeah. $500, to a million dollars to get their kids into school to the point that they would hire this guy to Photoshop their kids' faces onto pole vaulters and rowers and sports their kids didn't even pl- um, play. And then they would bribe the college people, the admissions people, to get their kids in. And it worked. For years it worked. Wow. And the idea that you would feel that your child is entitled to go to a college and you would go to that length, if that had already existed when I was writing the book, I would have definitely stuck it in because yeah, it's so yeah, ridiculous yeah. and probably no one like, that's crazy. No one could really do that. But they did. That's what's happening there. And that's that's a little bit like these clients at the farm who want to give their kids an edge in utero. Yeah, yeah. Um, like by listening to all the music and having the like – Custom that. multivitamins yeah. and the cortisol is the stress hormone. So I'm monitoring the host to make sure their stress levels don't get high because studies show that's bad for the baby. And 
um, I was sort of playing on um, this overzealousness, I feel like, on the part of so many parents now. Maybe because the world's gotten more competitive. I don't know. But to give their kids an edge earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. And if you could start in utero... I bet I know some people who do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean. I suppose people probably do it now by certain practices they do before, like yeah. bringing them into the world via like kind of hypnobirthing. And yeah, all kind of. I suppose, and people do listen to music. And yes, totally. Yeah, no, when yeah, I was, yeah. I was a very nervous first-time mom, and I remember. I think the reason I got quite anxious I'm a little bit of an anxious person anyway is because I would read these articles that were like you should talk to your belly and you should play Mozart for it and you should I was like ah it's like too much so so many things I should be doing yes yeah to give them the edge to make them because the studies show they'll be more articulate when they pop out of the womb if you talk to them now and all that stuff like what is the implicit message there that you've just got to start earlier and earlier to give them the edge it's like, oh, and, and it's impossible to do everything. And like, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, then should you? Is that really the point of all this? Is that really what you want to teach your kids, that it is about getting an edge on everyone at any cost? So everything's a competition. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, like, and what do you sacrifice? Because you've got this obsession of always giving someone the best, what kind of things that are really important do you then sacrifice because that's where your focus lies rather than on the the love and the attention yes. and you know like that the things that potentially matter way more than the belongings and the completely specific, like the, you know, like the and the achievements and the laurels yeah, yeah, and that yeah. i mean i think something that we probably both feel as writers is it's it's not about the book it's about the process right that really is what writing is it's mm. a verb it's not a noun and i feel life is a verb too mm. and the problem with this attitude i think is it's all about the nouns and the accolades and the owning this and the and it i just think it can blind and has blinded and me when I was a first-time mom I was just so nervous I let myself get all kinds of confused yeah. <laughs> reading so many books about what I was supposed to be doing um and so I think I I think I mean I know I think some of the book was also about that yeah absolutely well I was actually mm-hmm. going to ask you about motherly yeah. love <laughs> um so yeah like how people how competitive people are and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so I suppose you've kind of sp- spoken a little bit about your explanation of motherly love did that come from want your experience as well like another aspect of your experience that you wanted to put in the book or it did yeah. i mean certainly the perfect parenting that that yeah. sort of zealousness and overzealousness mm. um is something i have felt felt the pressure of and and seen and judged even though i'm trying not to be so judgmental the book can just sort of explore it like why we feel this way um and what it means and and i think it probably is related to the fact that, at least in the States, and I don't know, I can't speak to other countries, life has gotten so competitive. Um, so competitive. So competitive. Everything's about that. Everything's about it, and everything starts early. Like, now I've heard kids in college, you have to have a good internship after your freshman year to know, I mean, how do you know what you want to do when you're 18? I don't know. I didn't have, I had to work through college, so I didn't get those cool unpaid internships that everybody else got um, that set them up. For jobs later but the idea that earlier and earlier we're supposed to start thinking our kids are sp- supposed to start thinking about how where they're going to end up and how to get there and the best way to get there and angling to get there i don't know i feel like we're losing sight we have one life yeah and, and also the, the, the fact that you can ch- be a completely different person when, when yes. you're when you're like 14 and making your decisions about what completely. you're going to study which is bonkers completely you know, than you are when you're you know like and you can do more than one thing oh yes i mean this is right yeah. completely i this is my new career at 46 you know i've done a lot of other things it's funny i i um, was asked to speak to a group of young female students um sort of underserved women in new york and one thing i 
was careful not to say is this whole notion of follow your bliss, follow your dream, because sometimes it's more complicated than that. Like I couldn't do that right out of school. And do I regret it? I've been asked that too. Not necessarily. I mean, it's my life. It's it. I'm proud that I paid off my debt. I'm glad that I know how the world works and I learned some skills in finance and it definitely informed the book. I don't think I could have written this book with all the perspectives it has on um, our capitalist system without understanding it as well as I do because of finance and writing for The Economist. I just think life is, I don't know, I guess I've never been a very linear person. So the idea that we're supposed to know at a very young age where we want to end up and try to draw the straightest line there doesn't resonate with me anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so this whole scramble to make sure our kids know where they want to end up and have the straight line, there is, um, I don't even get it, it seems really. seems counterintuitive. Like, yeah. yeah. And also like the fact that so much emphasis is put on academic mm-hmm. yes. excellence right? rather than things that are just passions. Right. You know, like that, right. that, that thing or things or, or, or like skills that mm-hmm. are, you know, kind of like handy, like right. sort of yes. like being a carpenter, stuff yes. like that, like things that are great professions. Right. Yes. But it's, it's like that kind of obsession with education in, along the traditional route to get you in a traditional job like right. I feel I feel that quite strongly about my education it was yeah. very much about passing exams right rather than identifying right. and it just seems a bit of a shame it does people don't really get the, it's this it's it's like a, a loss of individualism maybe yes and it's um it's also such a narrowing of life right exactly. like like if the, just to stay open to whatever it is to learn whenever you can because you don't know yeah. and being able to teach our kids and ourselves that it's okay not to know because you don't know where it's going to go. And one of my favorite stories is from the Steve Jobs commitment speech that before he dropped out of college at Reed College, his favorite class or one of his favorite classes was on fonts. Remember that? On like, um, it was on fonts. It was like calligraphy. Th- and, and who knows why he took it, but it ended up really informing how he designed all the Apple products. It was that eye to detail and design. Um, and I always say that to my kids. I mean, you don't know if you're closed because you've decided at age, I don't know what, that you know where you want to end up some fancy jobs, you're going to shut out all the little inspirations and things that could feed into something great later. Yeah. And that, and then that gives, it gives ground to kind of like doubting yourself when you mm-hmm. feel compelled to do one thing because you're kind of like, well, I should be doing this traditional mm-hmm. thing. Right. And like, but also it must be, it must be very hard to not have an idea of what you want to do when you're paying a hundred thousand pounds for your education or a hundred thousand dollars for your education. Right. Right. You know, like that it's, if, you, if you're going to be in that much debt, it feels like the right thing to do is to know how you're going to what you're going to do afterwards so you can get yourself out of that debt. I right. So I think you have to be like, I had to be practical. So I knew that I was going to take a job. It never occurred to me to write yeah. out of college. Like that just never occurred to me. Um, but someone told me once when I was younger, as long as you're learning and you know roughly why you're doing whatever you're doing in the moment, you don't need a grand plan because you're learning each step along the way. And in a weird way, they're going to connect. And I didn't believe him at the time. I was like, why am I on Wall Street? This isn't what I want to do. But in fact, Weirdly, it was because of Wall Street and private equity that I got the job at The Economist because I had no clips. I had no writing. What they hired me for was my knowledge of that world. And The Economist then led me into writing and got me to learn a certain type of writing, which I believe somehow fed into what I'm doing now. I don't know. It's not a linear path I've had, but I think that you can kind of see the connections. And so maybe this guy, Andy, back when I was 22, was right. At the time, I felt very lost, and I just thought he was full of shit to be honest I was like what are you talking about this makes no sense what I'm doing now yeah don't talk to me about that <laughs> right. I suppose it goes back to the faith thing you know like faith that. and openness right exactly. staying open to the world and what it has to teach you at that moment yeah like what if you had to take a job working cleaning floors for a bit to do whatever you do next does that mean your life's a waste no if you're somehow staying open and 
for that moment, staying open to other possibilities and getting out of there, but also staying open to what's happened. I don't know. I have to believe that's the only way to live. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that I've actually interviewed for this podcast um, where similar situations have mm-hmm. happened you know where mm-hmm. their their experience is built up over the course of their over the course oh, of their yeah. lives and then it's like Alex Michaelides who wrote the Science oh, yeah. Passion uh-huh. he worked in screenwriting and then studied psychotherapy and then okay. came up with his book idea and right. he again right. had he came up with the idea for the book and then that hmm. and he'd like read loads of stuff as a mm-hmm. child that mm-hmm. he'd really enjoyed and wanted to kind of retail and it all just kind of right. culminated it, it was sort and of came together accru- uh, an accretion of things right yeah, yeah. That, that's a I think that's a lovely way of thinking about it you know and, and it feels like this was a book that you were made, meant to write really because mm-hmm. like all it, it combines everything that your experience is and that's, right no yeah. no it's funny that yeah that's funny i was reading about i'm not going to remember his name but there's some artist his last name i think is jackson that i read about in the new yorker and he talked about his art as sedimentary it's like layers and layers of things mm. on top of each other putting pressure on each other and becoming something else and i thought that was so great yeah, it's a good yeah. way of thinking about yeah. it as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Layer it up. Versus linear, yeah. right? Which is a little <laughs> stressful if it has to be linear. Yeah. Um, so so I'll get back to the <laughs> questions. So race is another, another, obviously another matter that factors heavily mm-hmm. in the book. You've sort of touched on it. Um, and obviously it's a huge thing in the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's kind of the white women within Golden Oaks who are considered the sort of holy grail of uteruses. Mm-hmm. And the sort of Filipino women who are considered well-behaved and mm-hmm. quite pliable. Mm-hmm. And so, can, yeah, can you talk a little about your portrayal and exploration of racial dynamics within mm-hmm. the novel? I... Um... The Filipinas I wrote about, uh, as I mentioned, are really rooted in sort of my knowledge of other Filipinas, um, the stories I heard and the culture that I know from growing up. Uh, I have heard some of the racist stuff. I've heard people I know, whether it's domestic workers or other family and friends who are Filipinas, say things like, well, you know, you want to work for the Americans. They have softer hearts. If you work for another Filipino, she's going to be harsher on you. Or if you work on filling a race, I don't really need to get into the different races that they would talk about. But so I, I put that in there. I had one interviewer say, aren't you um, kind of letting white Americans slide by saying that? And I'm like, well, one, it was the character saying it, not me. And two, I've heard many people say that. Mm-hmm. Um, many Filipinas say it. Uh, I knew a baby nurse who would tell me by race who rank um, – the best to the worst employers, um, people who are cheap, cultures that are cheap, cultures that are more generous. And um, she was actually a great lady. She just had – these were her views. And I was just trying to show how it's not just um, – that we all have these biases, right? And um, I sort of wanted to play with that in the book, from both from the side of the women – uh, who were hosts. I have a Guyanese woman saying some of these things in the book. Um, and then also, of course, the fact that, you know, the so the, the white women who are educated at the farm are called premium hosts, and they get paid more money because they're considered rarer, and there are certain clients who care. And I think that is a reflection of some things I have experienced and know that um, – like, for instance, I, I thought about donating my eggs at Princeton. Not seriously, maybe, but I had no cash. <laughs> and there were ads all over our newspaper. But no one wanted my eggs in the sense that all the ads were about we would like a young woman from Princeton who is five, six or above, blue eyes, blonde hair, athletic. I'm none of those things, including athletic. <laughs> and so 
that wasn't even an option. And I, I guess I was thinking about that. I was like, huh, if you were going to have a premium host with certain types of clients, and by the way, not just white clients, I've heard of other, I feel like um, prioritizing the white client, um, or the white host rather is not just uh, other white clients. I think there are other, there, I think there's certain um, races that wouldn't want um, an African-American or brown host. Um so anyway, I was I was feeding into I think it was rooted in the fact that no one wanted my eggs at college and maybe I wouldn't have donated them, but I didn't even have the option. Uh, but I wanted to sort of play another, with that. Yeah, another thing that's fed into the. the I had forgotten about that. Yeah. I wrote that, and then I was like, oh wait, I did kind of think about that. <laughs> I did sort of pour over the Princeton newspaper and couldn't find an ad that wanted my eggs. And would I've really done it? I don't know because it it wasn't a possibility anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I have a whole riff in the book about how Mayu and her boss are talking about having a kind of a lower end premium line, which is all of the sort of overlooked white community college graduates or something. And that was just my way to talk about that was, I think, was that after the election? It was around the time when people were talking about how, um, you know, the hollowing out of middle America. And hollowing out of jobs. And exactly. Now, and now they can give them this job, which yes. is like their... Right. Facilities, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that that bit was particularly powerful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what advice do you have for writers that are trying? You, you know, you've written something that's so layered and has so much going on, and so and is saying so much. So, what advice do you have for writers who also want to write cover not necessarily similar topics, but just a lot of topics? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how did you? Uh, yeah, how how would you advise them to proceed? I think it's back to what we were saying before that you have your obsessions or the th- the set of things that just um consume you for whatever reason and you just keep writing around that until you find the idea that sticks and again for me it took a year and a half until i came across the article that introduced the concept of a surrogacy facility and i also think there's a lot of rewriting i think ultimately it has to be a compelling story otherwise you're just getting on a soapbox which is not what i wanted to do um and so i do think it's continue to write stories around your ideas until you come across the concept or the structure or the sort of the the, the, the plot, I guess, a plot idea that will allow you to make it come alive. Because a set of ideas on a page is boring and no one's going to want to read it. And then no one will be convinced about your ideas because they'll be bored and will probably put the book down. So my first goal was to write a good yarn. And the trick was to try to weave in what I wanted to say, too. But the story had to come first. The stories and the character had to come first. Otherwise, what have you got? What so have you got? Like an essay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny because that's what my I asked for media training at Random House because I'm a very nervous public speaker. I've gotten better, but especially in the beginning. And I would talk about, well, what I wanted to write about was otherness. And she's like, no, no one... No one wants to listen to that. They want to hear the story. Talk about the story first. That's why people will pick up the book and then you talk about your ideas. And I think that's true for the writing of it too, not just the speaking about it. Yeah. Also yeah. great advice as well. So you, you touched on it earlier um, that you're not, maybe not writing at the moment because you're so focused on the selling. <laughs> yeah, um, can you, is this, so obviously you're going to write a second book. You need to write a second yeah, book. Yeah, no, I really, I'm excited to. And I have a notebook that I jot down little ideas and seedlings Um and I hope they coalesce into something. I, I thought I had an idea, but then it's totally shifted. So after we'll see. It's a today. faith thing. I mean, I, I will admit to you that I'm a little nervous about it. But then that's the that ner- that 
will drive you as well because it will be, so. be the thing that makes you go to your desk and makes you... Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Um, well, yeah. thank you so much. The Farm is fantastic. Oh, thank, um, thank you. Thank you for writing it and thank you for speaking to me today. It's been oh, an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you, it's been great. Thanks. Thank you. How do you fancy working with an author within your genre on your work in progress? It's now a possibility with the riffraff. We've got a wonderful roster of more than 30 authors um, for you to work with, starting from around 150 quid. So head over to the website, the-riffraff.com, to check it out. Cheers. Cheers.